So Stephen starts at the very beginning of the history of the Jewish people in his defense. After the high priest asks him, are these things so? He begins at the very beginning of Jewish history as his defense. And he says in verse 2, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. Here we see the generational workings of God in the hearts and lives of men, in the affairs of men in the earth. Abraham would not possess it, but his descendants would, if Abraham was faithful. But God spoke in this way, verse 6, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And that whole process was 400 years from the time um, they went into Egypt to the time they were delivered out. 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. This, of course, is talking about the fact that they would be brought under the bondage of Egypt. And then they would be delivered. And we all know those stories. They are prominent in holy writ. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And verses 9 and 10 says, And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Notice in verses 9 and 10 that God being with us doesn't mean a trouble-free life. There's actually Christians who believe that, that you know, if you follow Jesus, you know, you'll never have a flat tire in a bad spot. Everything will go wonderful for you and you'll walk along the road of life on a bed of roses. And there's actually people who try to sell Jesus to people that way. And then they find out, no, it's not that way. And they weren't really genuinely converted and they fall away from following after Christ. Notice that God being with us doesn't mean a trouble-free life, does it? How do we know that from these two verses? Verse 9 says, but God was with him. So here God is with him, but look at verse 10. And delivered him out of all his troubles. Just because God is with us does not mean we will have a trouble-free life. Understand that. What were some of Joseph's troubles? Number one, he had familial troubles, didn't he? His siblings envied him. They despised him and hated him. Secondly, he had oppressive troubles. He was thrown into slavery, sold into it by his very own family, his siblings, his brothers. 
conspiring against him. They actually wanted to murder him, but settled for selling him into slavery instead. And another great trouble of Joseph, number three, he was falsely accused of a sexual allegation. He was accused of attempted rape. And when we read about his life in the book of Genesis, we see that, yes, the Lord did deliver Joseph out of all of these troubles. He delivered him out of all these troubles. These huge, seemingly insurmountable troubles, God himself delivered Joseph out of, as the scripture declares here through the mouth of Stephen. You have to understand, these troubles did not happen one week and then were resolved the next week. These troubles that Joseph endured, came into, they didn't happen one week and were resolved the next week. Joseph didn't suffer injustice one week and was vindicated the next week. It didn't happen that way. His troubles followed him for 13 long years. We know that because at the beginning of this, it talks about how he was 17 years old when his brothers did this to him. And he didn't stand before Pharaoh, we know the scripture says in chapter 41, until he was 30 years old. This is a 13-year-long trouble, (laughs) you know, for 13 long years of trouble for Joseph. So I want to look just a little bit at these troubles. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 37. The very first book of Holy Writ, the book of Genesis. Let's turn to chapter 37. And look at verses 2 through 4. It says, This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. They were doing something out there that they weren't supposed to be doing, that everyone in the family knew dad didn't want taking place, and he, he ratted them out. He brought this bad report about his brothers. That didn't endure Joseph to his brothers. But there's more. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also he made him a tunic of many colors. Verse 3. This is a, this is a thing a parents, parents need to understand. Is that when you favor one of your children and treat them different than you treat the rest of your kids, and your kids notice that, that isn't good for the family. And it isn't good for the kid that you've decided to treat differently or in a special way than all the other kids. Good parents love all their kids equally. And you might say, well, how is that possible? It is. I have 11. I love them all equally. I would die for any of them. My heart's been broken um, at times over all of them and the things they've had to suffer, the things they've had to endure in life. We love our children. So I've always think it's crazy because I've seen parents do that where they favor a certain kid and I think it's bizarre behavior, unusual behavior to see. So he's got that going against him because, oh, look at Dad, he's treating him this way and he treats all us that way. And then verse 4, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. 
See, you make it worse for the person, the kid, that you're showing the special attention to. That's just how life is. It's human behavior. Then to top it all that off, the next several verses talk about Joseph having these two dreams where all these other people are bowing down to him, so to speak. And so they're totally interpreting it as, oh, you think that we're all going to bow down to you one day, Joseph? So Joseph's just skippy happy. God gave me this dream. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he hasn't learned yet. Maybe you want to keep that dream to yourself, you know, and just see if it pans out. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, he wants to tell his brothers about it. And then he has a second dream where even the sun and the moon bow down before him. And then Jacob and his wife are like, what? Mom and dad are going to bow down to you too? Well, that's crazy. So none of this was, none of this was good for Joseph and it all attributed to the envy that his brothers had towards him. As it says in verse 11 there in chapter 37, look at verse 11, and his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So first, Joseph is envied by his brothers, but this soon turns to hate. Look at verse 18. It says, Now when they saw him afar off, Jacob had sent him off to go find his brothers who were taking care of the livestock in a different geographical area. Now when they saw him afar off, talking about Joseph coming, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. So, They want to kill him, but Reuben interposes, the oldest brother. Remember Reuben's the oldest? And don't think, well, Reuben was at least a cool dude and showed a little love to his brother. Reuben was worried about what might happen to him as the older brother if something happened to his little brother. That's what Reuben was more concerned about. At least, that's what I believe in. If he's up in glory when I get there, I'll ask him about that. So what exactly did you have in mind? So they because of Reuben's interposition, decide, well, we'll just disrobe him and throw him into this pit. Then they're out there partying around, and then all of a sudden a bunch of Arabs come through, and they're like, oh, my golly, we can sell him. Hey, Judah comes up with this great idea. He says, we can sell him. Verse 26 there. So Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. And then he was sold again. Verse 36. Now the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and a captain of the guard. So things are not going good for Joseph, are they? He's got all this familial strife, all these familial troubles taking place, and they reach this epic point where his brothers hate him so badly that they want to murder him, and out of some sort of kindness, they decide, well, we'll just sell him so we can make money off him. We'll sell him to these slave traders. And now here he is in this foreign country, sold as a slave. Understand, he's 17 years old. His future to him looks incredibly dashed at this point, right? 
the walls are closing in on him, right? Remember when you were young, how the walls close in on you more? You think everybody knows about everything about you because you're this one little person. You don't have a bigger worldview. I remember the first time I went to work in a steel mill, I thought the place was this magnificent, huge factory. I was 19 years old. I came back just three years later, got rehired there, and I thought, wow, this place shrunk while I was gone. As, as the older you get, the world seems smaller. That's just how life is. But when you're young, it seems much bigger. And you're much more myopic and you think everybody and his life is looking bleak at this point. His future has been dashed to the ground. So Joseph is envied and hated by his own family, his own siblings, and now he's been sold into slavery. Slavery. His troubles have increased. And yet, look what the Scriptures say. Look with me now to chapter 39. We'll skip over chapter 38. Why that was thrown in there, we'll talk about another day. And it says in verses 1 and 2, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, brought him from the bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And look what it says in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Wow. So again, just because the Lord is with you doesn't mean you live a trouble-free life. Here, Joseph's troubles are increasing. Already have familiar troubles. Now, he's been sold into slavery And yet the Scriptures make clear the Lord is with him. Just what Stephen said as he's giving his defense in Acts 7 is right from the Word of God itself here in the book of Genesis. The Lord was with him in the midst of this. Your family wanting you dead. You now being a worthless slave. Understand, Jacob was pretty well off from that well-off lifestyle to a slave. Amazing change. And notice verse 3, it says, And his master saw that the Lord was with him. Even other people saw that the Lord was with him in how he conducted his life, in how he behaved. The Lord is with him. Even in the midst of all his troubles, the Lord is with him. Even other people saw that the Lord was with him But now his trouble would increase even more. As if this wasn't bad enough, God wasn't done bringing trouble Joseph's way. Look at the end of verse 6 of chapter 39. It says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So he was handsome in form and appearance. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. So Joseph was a slave of Potiphar's. Potiphar trusted him so much that he put him in charge of all of his affairs. Trusted him to take care of his banking, his books, his property. That's what Joseph's referring to here when he says this to Potiphar's wife. And then he says in verse 9, There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, 
because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. We don't know what garment this was. We know that the Hebrew word there, it was an outer garment of some kind. And it obviously was clearly able to be identified as his garment, whatever it was, whether it was a sash or something of another nature when you look at how they dressed back then. And so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought in to us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. Wow, she told a lie. Joseph wouldn't give in, and she made up a lie. Now, you can't tell this story to the Me Too movement in America today because they believe you always believe the victim no matter what, which is pagan thought. Christian thought is if an allegation is made, you look into it. You investigate to determine whether there's any validity to the claim or not. These guys back here in pagan Egypt, they didn't care about that. First off, he's a foreigner, so they already don't like him. And secondly, he's messing with our master's wife, our friend's wife. And so they just believe the story. And it happened when he heard heard that, I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came until his master came home. This is manipulation. This woman didn't get what she wanted out of this young guy, and so she's going to make sure that she makes his life miserable. She's been offended in some way. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to me to mock me. In other words, to humiliate her, to have sex with her, to rape her. To mock me. So it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. And this is how any good man would respond, hearing this story from his wife. His anger would be aroused. He would believe his wife. And he would take action, and it's exactly what Potiphar did. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. So now things have even gotten worse. Your family wants you dead. They sell you into slavery. Now you're just a worthless slave. And now you're not even a trustworthy slave. Now you're being accused of attempted rape, and you're sitting in a prison. And yet, look what verse 21 says. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. Just because the Lord is with us 
does not mean that there won't be troubles in our lives. Understand that? God never promises a trouble-free life. It is not anywhere in the whole venue of Christendom, of Christianity, of Christian living. It's not there. It's a made-up fairy tale by men who have something to sell to people who need to get a clue. Here we see the troubles of Joseph that are spoken of in our passage back in Acts 7.10. But also we see here what was spoken back in Acts chapter 7, verse 9. That in the midst of all these troubles, the Lord is with Joseph. The Lord is with Joseph in the midst of all his troubles, and the Lord would in his time, in his time, deliver Joseph out of them all. And again, these troubles did not happen one week and were then resolved the next week. Joseph did not endure injustice one week and then was vindicated the next week. This was 13 long years. Understand. And think of this. What future does he have? He probably would have had such thoughts way back when his brothers turned against him And then even more so when they sold him into slavery. And now he's in his mid-twenties and he's falsely accused of attempted rape. Not a good resume. Not a bright future. You know how many mid-twenty males I've talked to over the years who messed up their early years of their life and think they have no future? Because they've spoiled all those years. But it's not true. If you live for Christ and you follow after him and live according to his word, you have a bright future. And God can take anything that's happened to you prior to that and use it for good and his purposes in your life. The family is so important to building for your future, and yet his family hates him. They despise him, or they figure he's dead. He's a slave. And now not even a trustworthy slave. He has this dark blot against him. He's in prison for attempted rape. An allegation that's not even true. Many would think, here's what many would think in the midst of this situation. They would think thoughts like this. I did what was right and this is how the Lord rewards me? That's the type of thoughts most people would have. If I would have had sex with her, I would be living freer than this prison. What good did it do to stay faithful to him? My reputation will be better than what it is now. Now I'm looked upon as a pariah, a rapist. But the scriptures do not record Joseph doing any of this, thinking any of these thoughts, expressing any of these thoughts to the Lord. In fact, we see repeatedly glimpses that he stayed true to the Lord and walked with him. For example, when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him in chapter 39, verse 9, look what Joseph said in chapter 39, verse 9. He said, There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. And then look what he says, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He's still walking with the Lord. His family hates him, wants to kill him, He's been sold into slavery, and he still loves the Lord. 
Another example would be when he met with the butler in prison. In chapter 40, I believe that is. Verse 8. Remember he met with the baker and the butler and they each had a dream and Joseph interpreted for him and it says, we each have a, had a dream and there is no interpreter of it. So Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell them to me, please. Here he is still walking with the Lord, still looking to God. Not becoming bitter, not becoming angry with the Lord or sullen or sulken or keeping him at arm's length and just going through his religious motions, still heartfelt love for him. Do not interpretations belong to God. Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, Behold, in my dream a vine was before me, and in the vine were three branches. It was as though it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. But remember me when it is well with you, and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, and also I have done nothing here that they should put me into the... He knew he had done nothing wrong, yet he was in this place. He asks the butler to remember him when he was restored to his position, but what happens? Does the butler remember? No. Verse 23. Everything happened just as Joseph said, and verse 23 says, Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And now years go by of more prison. As it says, Then it came to pass at the end of two full years. Verse 1 of chapter 41, right? In the midst of all this, even the butler forgetting about him, another two years in prison, Joseph maintained his love and fealty for the Lord. How do we know that? Look at chapter 41, verse 16, and look what Joseph says when he's brought before Pharaoh to interpret his dream because the butler remembered him when Pharaoh had his dream and wanted someone to interpret it. So Joseph is brought before Pharaoh and it says, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that you can, you can understand a dream to interpret it. And look what Joseph says, So Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. He has made it through. He has not become bitter. He has not turned his back on God. He hasn't become sullen and decided I'm a victim. God's against me. He hates me. Who am I to... Oh, I'll just live my little poor, pathetic life. Ever gone to the university? There's like magnitudes of people who've been taught to think like they're a victim. And I always talk to them about how, how dumb that is. You're not a victim. If you give your life to Christ, live for Him, He will make your life into something. 
you take on responsibility. You don't sit there and wallow in your victimness. Understand that. When we find ourselves in troubles, we need to maintain our love and fealty for the Lord. We must not allow ourselves to become bitter or sullen. When we find ourselves in troubles, family troubles, for example, those come in all sizes, shapes, and manners. Right? Or troubles of oppression, like being sold into slavery or the government doing something or whatever. Or troubles from being falsely accused. Gossip, slander, maliciousness towards one's character or reputation. Listen, in any troubles or a multitude of troubles, when they come your way, you have to allow the troubles to be used of Him to produce better character in your life. You have to allow the troubles to be used of Him to produce better character in your life. You must not become bitter. You must become better. You must not become bitter. You must become better. I have seen so many over my years as a Christian, and I am getting old, and over my many years as a Christian, I have seen many who did not make it through the troubles. They encountered like Joseph encountered here. They instead became bitter. They instead became religious and just went through their outward religious motions, kept God at arm's arms space. And it breaks my heart when I think of some of those people. Because it's hard. It's hard when you're going through the troubles. It's grievous. But you have to look beyond them and see what is God doing here And particularly, what is he doing with me? What is he trying to do in my life? We can think we're all legends in our own mind. Very simple to do. And the truth of the matter is, we're mere men. And we all have our shortcomings, we all have our faults, we all have our flaws. And some of them we cannot see at all. And it takes those troubles to bring them to light so he can remove them out of our life if we allow it. The Apostle Paul wrote of this. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 5, and let's read verses 3 and 4. Romans chapter 5, and we'll read verses 3 and 4. It says, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Hard things, bad stuff. We glory in them, Paul says. Okay, that isn't the normal Christian response in 21st century American Christianity. Rather, we've created theologies that, oh, you'll have a trouble-free life. No, true Christians glory in tribulations knowing, not that we're saddest and we love tribulations and troubles and distresses and bad things, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. 
Do you know how powerful those words are? How important those words are to us to understand? Look how the Apostle Peter addressed it in 2 Peter chapter 1. Turn there. 2 Peter chapter 1 and look at verses 5 through 9. It says, but also for this reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Big deal if you have all this stuff this doctrine, this understanding of the mind of God. But you haven't been beaten. You haven't been chastised. You haven't been broken in ways. So that you can understand the depth and truth of knowing Him, of walking with Him, of producing these things within your life. Self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. That's what those things produce. They go beyond mere knowledge when God works those things in us. For he who lacks these things, Peter says, is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. This is important stuff. Look what James said in chapter 1, in his epistle, James chapter 1, verse 12. He said, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. When trials, temptations, distresses, troubles come your way, you're blessed. God is working in your life. It may not seem it at the moment, but if you continue on, if you do not become bitter, listen to me now, the Lord will use those things to build gold in your life. Gold. There is no word that expresses it better than that. And that's why I use it. Because it's what I've learned in my lifetime from the troubles and hardships that God builds gold in our lives. We become far, capital F, capital A, capital R, far more useful in His hands because of the troubles, because of the tribulations, because of the persecutions, because of the trials, if we make it through. It's gold that he builds within us. You are far more useful to his hand and to his kingdom if you make it through. These times of troubles... The trials and affliction, the persecutions and tribulations, if you make it through, will cause you to better understand three things. One, you will better understand and demonstrate mercy. Okay? You will better understand and demonstrate mercy. Again, we're all legends in our own mind. Once the troubles come your way, harshness will lessen as long as you make it through and don't become bitter. Harshness will lessen. Judgment will temper. This does not mean compromise or winking at license, but a true mercy found in God. 
one which is pure and unhalting, yet takes into account the nature of man and one's own frailty as mere men. That's the mercy I'm talking about that will be added to your life, that you will better understand and demonstrate. Second, you will better understand and demonstrate maturity. Maturity. You will be wiser and more of an elder, regardless of your age, once you endure the troubles. You will have better balance. You will have more life experience. You will be more even-keeled. You will be more discerning. You will grow up. You will become more mature. Not a hot shot. Remember Peter? Though all forsake you, let not I, O Lord. And what did he do? He had to bitterly cry after he denied the Lord three times. God had to give him trouble, heartbreak, grievousness, distress. And then Peter was more useful in his hands. He's growing up. He's maturing. And the third thing that you will better understand and demonstrate as a result of the troubles is magnanimity. What is magnanimity? It's actually an important attribute or virtue to me because it's part of the blazon of arms or the coat of arms for the Chuella name. Magnanimity. Magnanimity, according to Webster Merriam in the current dictionary, is the quality of being magnanimous. Shocking, right? It means loftiness of spirit, enabling one to bear trouble calmly. To bear trouble calmly. To disdain meanness and pettiness. You go through the troubles, you make it through, you will understand how important that is. You will disdain meanness and pettiness. And then the definition ends by saying, and to display a noble generosity. The 1828 Webster Dictionary defines magnanimity as greatness of mind, that elevation or dignity of soul, which encounters danger and trouble with tranquility and firmness, which raises the possessor above revenge and makes him delight in acts of benevolence, which makes him disdain injustice and meanness, and prompts him to sacrifice personal ease, interest, and safety for the accomplishment of useful and noble objects. You know, like maintaining the unity of the brethren, building up the kingdom of God on the earth, things bigger than ourselves. When we have magnanimity, we can do that. And I'm telling you, the troubles, if you make it through, produce that within us. This magnanimous spirit, which understands we all suck in some way. Let's work together here. Let's love each other here. In other words, people who are in troubles like Joseph most often only think of themselves People with magnanimity think of the bigger picture. 
What is God doing in their lives and in the lives of the others? That's what magnanimous people do. Once you have suffered at the hands of circumstances or of people and you make it through, you become more magnanimous. You are not as quick to judge. You do not unduly condemn or try to manipulate. If you do not become bitter, our Lord will build gold in your lives. You will become far more useful in his hands. Understand the troubles, the trials and afflictions, the persecutions and tribulations. It's not okay how the people involved mistreated you. They do not get a pass, but understand this. The Lord wants to build character in your life. What's he trying to build in your life? Verses 9 and 10 of Acts 7 make it clear that God being with us doesn't mean a trouble-free life. Young people, just because circumstances or people have served you a hard blow, understand you will live on. Do you have a future? Yes. One day, the things of your youth will pale in memory. Won't even remember it. Like looking through a glass darkly. Look at Joseph. His circumstances at age 17. His circumstances in his mid-20s. All lost. No future. Yet, he lives for our Lord. He lives for our Lord. And that is what matters. This is the most important thing. Be faithful to him. Live as someone who exemplifies his character. Live as a Christian man. Live as a Christian woman. Amen. You either allow the Lord to build his character in your life or you become bitter and act like a victim. And we have a nation of people like that in our day here in America. The scripture talk about Distress. Ever suffered distress? Troubles. Problems. And the psalmist writes about it repeatedly. Mark this down, Psalm 18, verse 6. When you're in your distress, cry out to him. My wife Clara went up to the Garden of Gethsemane, that's what she calls it, at the top of our land, which she's cleared out. She loves to go up there by herself and pray. She was up there this morning just crying out to God. And in a way, she's become like Clara of Richfield as Francis was of Assisi. Because remember, Francis of Assisi would have the little birds and squirrels and chipmunks gather around him. And while she's up there praying, in walks a deer. And she ends up talking to it. And it just stands there looking at her. A deer. How odd is that? In Psalm 118, verse 5, the psalmist talks about his distresses and he talks about how the Lord has brought him into a broad place, which means a place of safety and relative calm. Psalm 120, verses 1 through 4, also talks about distress. And the scripture reads there in Psalm 120, verses 1 through 4, In my distress I cried to the Lord and he heard me. 
Deliver my soul, Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you or what shall be done to you, you false tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree. When you're in distress, cry out to the Lord. Look what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.4. This is how normal troubles are to the Christian life. That nowhere are we promised a trouble-free life as some in American Christianity try to make out. 2 Corinthians 6.4, Paul is writing and he says, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, and then look what he says, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. You see that? Chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, verse 10 says, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches, in needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When you're going through the troubles, the distresses, the persecutions, you are weak. And that's when he's strong. Amen? And you must draw close to him at that time and cry out to him. May Christ be praised. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer.